Hello, and welcome back to Luxi, a podcast to reunite your wonder by exploring the science behind luxury items. I'm Dr. Lex. And I'm Dr. Demos. And tonight we are talking about sapphires. So Demos, what is something you wondered about sapphires before this episode? I um, wondered if it was just another piece of jewelry that was fun to look at and could be manufactured uh, artificially, but if it actually had any real scientific use. And then I was quite humbled by the amazing amount of scientific uses it had. Yeah, I was really curious about how sapphires get all of the colors that they come in, because they come in a lot of colors. They do. So I thought that was super interesting. And speaking of color, do you have a favorite sapphire color? No, not really. I mean, I don't ever really think of sapphires or jewelry that much in my regular work. And <laughs> so I like clear gems. So I think like quartz is exciting and, and like diamonds obviously are really cool because they do have a lot of interesting applications in science that I'm involved with. Well, I like the blue ones. Thanks for asking. Mm-hmm. No. Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay. That was crappy. <laughs> No, it's all right. Um, I think mostly because you see the blue ones the most. They're the most common. But also I have a bit of a memory connected to sapphires. So back when I was a baby master student, I spent a little over a month in Cambodia working at microbiology labs in hospitals there. And Cambodia is among the countries that gemologists and others source gemstones from. One of the nurses I was working with told me that she knew a jewelry dealer in the local market that had prices that a grad student might be able to afford, being closer to the source and being made by local craftsmen. So we walked through the whole market until we arrived at a small stall way in the back with a very ancient looking woman as the proprietor. And I spotted a gorgeous sapphire ring with white gold and three perfectly matched oval sapphires in blue. Now here in the U.S. and other places, rings are stamped, you know, 14 karat gold, 18 karat gold, so that you know what they're made of. Now this ring didn't have a stamp. There's no way in the moment to verify that it was indeed white gold and sapphire, but I trusted both the nurse and the vendor, and it looked pretty real to me, as untrained as my eye is. So we decided on a price, and I... Uh, went home. And Did you like hold it up to the light? Yeah, well, I mean, I tried to look like I was knowing I knew what I was doing, right? <laughs> and uh, and so I got home and I wore it, you know, it was the first time I wore it for kind of a whole day. And as we found out in our silver episode, I'm allergic to pretty much any metal that isn't gold. So I wore the ring for a few days and no itching. So it was indeed gold. Mm. Later, you and I had the ring appraised. So it is what, it, what they said it was. And it represents a milestone for me, not just as a memento of a really incredible trip, but also the first time that I bought myself some nice jewelry. Do you have any sapphire So for me, stories? it was, I guess, more of a mechanical sapphire mm. story. Um, I had uh, gotten a really cool skeleton watch um, for my high school graduation. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was really a pretty watch. It was so exciting. But I wasn't used to a watch that you actually had to wind up. Oh, yeah. Up. So I'm sitting there, I'm winding it up, and I hadn't really put it on yet. And I'm winding up, and all of a sudden I fumble, and it falls off my wrist mm. right onto, like, the curb on a sidewalk that oh, I was no. standing on. And, I, and it just hit the ground on the face of the watch. You just see it going down. And, of course, the skeleton watch, you can actually see the m- movement inside through the glass mm. on both sides of the watch. Yeah, that's cool. So that was great. But I'm like, there's no way this watch survived it. And I picked it up, not a single scratch. Wow. Not a divot, nothing. It was it was as if it had never fallen. And I didn't realize it at the time, but that watch had a sapphire crystal. Oh, okay. So, and a lot of wristwatches do, a little more expensive ones do, not much more expensive. Mm-hmm. It's 
surprising how many sapphire crystals you see on like, a little, little bit nicer right. watches. So, so that was great. So that, that sapphire crystal saved me from, <laughs> uh, from an embarrassing foul. On That's probably Jamaica. why they use them to make the watches, right? So that when yeah. people drop them, it doesn't I think shatter. A lot of people drop their watches, so it's great. So do you want to know a little bit about sapphires? I would like to, thanks. So they belong to the family of minerals called corundum, maybe? Corundum, yeah, sure. Corundum? Corundum. And it's a crystalline form of aluminum oxide. That's basically what they are. You know the other famous member of this family? Garnet. No, we do garnet. Garnet sounds... uh, It's rubies. Ruby. Rubies are red corundums. And it's usually clear, but it takes on colors depending on the transition metal impurities. And sapphires are usually associated with blue stones, but come in a wide range of colors. And the blue comes from intervalence charge transfer. So this is from the transition metals present in blue sapphire, which are iron and titanium. An electron is transferred from the iron or titanium ions, and that causes a change in valence state of both. Now, a valence state is defined by how many hydrogen atoms that an element combines with, and its affinity or combining state of atom so it's basically the capacity to bond with other atoms specifically hydrogen ones so a good example is carbon has a uh, valence state of four because the carbon atom combined four hydrogens the change in valence state requires energy in this case electromagnetic energy is absorbed with the wavelength of that absorbed energy being yellow light and as we have talked about previously that certain when a certain color light is absorbed we see the opposite color so because yellow light is used we see the blue and that's okay. what makes these sapphires blue. And, and the m- you smile. Yes. And the more iron there is, the darker the blue. Mm-hmm. Interestingly. Pink sapphires and rubies are caused by chromium impurities. How do you think you make a purple sapphire? If I told you how to make red and blue. What- well, I guess if you combine the two. So chromium and iron. And titanium. Oh, you need the iron and the, t- and the titanium, titanium, interestingly. So yeah, blue and red makes purple. Oh, wow. That's so awesome. I know. It's like those tempera paints you had in kindergarten. Yeah, this is some fine tempera. <laughs> so party sapphires contain two or more colors in the same stone. And interestingly, you cannot make a party sapphire in the lab. You can't oh, grow oh. a synthetically dye-colored oh, sapphire. For now. For now. <laughs> Padparachka are a pink-orange sapphire that's originally found in Sri Lanka and seemed to be created by a diffusion of beryllium. And then the final one's not a color, it's a texture, if you will. So star sapphires. And these exhibit asterism. And this is not an ancient mystic faith. It's mm. <laughs> the intersection of needle-like inclusions that follow the underlying crystal structure. And so it, it appears to have a six-ray star pattern when you look down on it from above mm. in the light. And the inclusion is often rutile, um, which is pri- a mineral primarily made of titanium dioxide. And for the star sapphires, they cut them in what's called a cap. So there's no facets. It's that round cut to oh, a stone. Wow. So that way you can really see the star pattern. Yeah, yeah. It's really neat. Interesting. So sapphires are mined from alluvial deposits. Do you know what those are? No, I do not. Maybe something to do with mining. Sort of. It's actually loose clay or silt or sand or gravel deposited by running water. So in a stream bed or something like that. And they're mined all over the world, including here in the U.S. Would gold be an alluvial deposit? Gold can be in an alluvial deposit. Okay. The alluvi- it's just, alluvial deposits basically all this salt that like runs down a river oh, okay. to the... Yeah. So here in the U.S., sapphires are mined mostly in Montana, but a few have been found in Franklin, North Carolina. Well, a few gem-quality ones. They probably mine more industrial 
sapphires there. Do you know where Franklin is? No, not really, even though I'm from North Carolina. (laughs) not. But I know there are fields in North Carolina where you can go and look for uh, gemstones. Oh. Just like farm fields. Interesting. And people go out there and have a little strainer, and they strain out the dirt Mm -hmm. and see if they can find something. Cool. So the word sapphire, since you were curious about this, comes from the French saphir and the Latin saphirus and sapirus in Greek. And the Greek term is likely used to refer to lapis lazuli, which is a blue stone and not to sapphires. During the Middle Ages, European lapidaries used the Latin term sapphirus to refer to blue-colored corundum crystal. And a lapidary is somebody who shapes stone, mineral, and gemstones into decorative items, which I thought was kind of a cool word lapidary yeah for some Mm. reason it reminds me of a camel lapidary (laughs) (laughs) so sapphire is the birthstone for september and is a traditional gift for a 45th wedding anniversary Mm. i'm 45 i don't know you know it's interesting the wedding anniversary ones are kind of especially the old ones where it's like iron or (laughs) paper (laughs) you know an italian superstition holds that amulets of sapphire guard against eye problems and melancholy okay yeah well so what, reason to get it. what industrial uses did you find for sapphires? One of the things that I found out was that it's a little bit of a throwback in some ways to how other types of aluminum oxide are, have been used in my own work. So aluminum oxide is a very common material for electronic assemblies. It's pretty amazing in that you can you see it everywhere, wherever you want to provide easy insulation and excellent thermal conductivity. Hmm. So electronic switches and power carrying transistors will have this non-crystalline or amorphous form Mm -hmm. of sapphire. Hmm. And I had no idea. It's extremely robust. It's easy to bond to metallurgically. Mm -hmm. It has good thermal conductivity. So one of the things that's common is is you can bond silver paste to aluminum oxide. And because aluminum oxide is essentially sapphire, but Mm -hmm. just not crystalline sapphire, it retains a lot of the same properties as well. It's extremely hard. It resists cracking. And if you break it, it'll snap. Mm. But it takes a lot to snap aluminum oxide. And the other thing that's interesting is if it's non-crystalline, and then it's super easy to dope. Mm. So you can add zirconium, for example, to aluminum oxide and, and make it super strong. Some of the other stuff that I, I found out about it is that it's relatively easy to make fibers and fiber optic lines. So, so fiber optics are essentially these glasses that are pulled from the crystal. You can grow a crystalline fiber like a glass a piece of uh, a piece of fiber like a spaghetti noodle now this fiber on its own is expensive because it's made of pure sapphire but there's some really interesting things you can do with sapphire because sapphire is so mechanically stable but still has a thermal expansion like any material if you drill using high energy lasers little uh, dots Mm -hmm. in in a rapid succession and create tiny occlusions in the sapphire uh, fiber, those occlusions will change their distance from each other depending on temperature. Oh, Because the, the fiber will shrink or grow right. relative to temperature. And you can use that as an extremely sensitive and very repeatable thermometer for very high temperature processes. Oh, okay. So let's say, for example, you need a thermometer to measure the temperature of a coal-burning plant or a nuclear power mm-hmm. plant. Mm-hmm. It, you can't just put a metal thermometer in there because it'll melt. Right. Even really high 
high melting point refractory metals, but put a sapphire fiber optic cable in there, bounce light through the cable, and then the intensity of the reflected beam has to do with the interference created by the light wave that is shortened or lengthened by the cable. But this wouldn't be like for the meat thermometer to, to cook our pulled pork You know, tomorrow. <laughs> we are going to be cooking some pulled pork tomorrow, <laughs> Memorial Day weekend. This one, this is great for doing things like making other glasses, making mm-hmm. high-performance materials, or monitoring very high-temperature processes. Fusion reactor technology. And the temperatures that fusion reactors operate at are <laughs> excessive uh, right. to the point of, you know, inner in surface of the sun type temperatures. There's very few tools out there that can help you understand your process to mm-hmm. getting to fusion. And Sapphire is going to be probably one of the few ways that we'd be able to do that. Plus, if you want a window so you can look into the yeah, chamber, you need something really you're going to need a Sapphire window. And it's quite common to have windows into scientific processes made instead of glass made of sapphire you know it's really interesting you don't at least i don't appreciate often stop to appreciate really the intricacies of material science and how much it does to further other technologies and other scientific endeavors right i mean even you just look at the you know the beakers and things that i used to use in the lab like that's treated glass it's Mm -hmm. not just normal glass it's very special glass because you pour hot things in you pour cold things in you spin them around you know yeah all that kind of stuff and um and it's referred to as mineral glass yeah so it's just been really interesting having these discussions together because i'm learning a lot about all the materials that go into things that we use every day like our cell phones and the laptops and things like that but then also you know, materials and technologies that will hopefully further scientific research. Which makes you wonder why why we don't have sapphire glass cell phones. Yeah, if it's that, well, I'm sure it's the price. Well, I think it's a combination of the price and the fact that the cell phone would be wouldn't be something that would last very long. But the glass that you want to keep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it's like a Rolex, you know, you may hand that down from generation to generation. Yeah. But uh, no one's handing down heirloom cell phones. Well, that's because they're obsolete in like three years or whatever. (laughs) They're obsolete the day you buy them, let's face it. I don't know, maybe a little sapphire sleeve. Yeah, yeah, a protective case. Sapphire protective case. Instead of the otter cases, sapphire case. There you go. uh, Copyright, copyright, copyright. (laughs) That's our our idea. (laughs) Anything else? That those that's some things I, I can I can go well, into detail. It, no, it's good. I mean, I I think I'm gonna need your help on my end of uh, end okay. of it. So first, we're gonna do a little throwback to a previous episode on diamonds, where we talked about chemical vapor deposition, where the material is vaporized, put in a vacuum container, and then deposited in thin films, and that's how you can create diamond thin films, which mm-hmm. I thought was pretty cool. By the way, I love a throwback fact. It reminds me that science is all very much connected and that once you learn the terminology, it unlocks a whole world of discoveries. So it turns out you can make uh, graphene film electrical biosensors on a sapphire substrate. That's a lot of tongue twisty Mm. words, but we're going to try to break it down. So I kid you not, this guy's last name is Joe. So Joe et al. (laughs) published this method in an article in 2016 in the Journal of Nanoscience and Nanotechnology. You mean the journal? We need to have like a dad joke sound. Boink. (laughs) (laughs) I'll add that. Uh, 
So just so we're all on the same page, graphene is a 2D single or few sheets of hybridized carbon atoms. So really thin sheets of carbon atoms. And the researchers grew the graphene directly on the sapphire substrate. And a substrate is just a surface or material on which an organism lives or grows, or in this case is created. And it could also be uh, an, a substance that an enzyme acts on. So that's okay. what a substrate is. And they used double-sided polished sapphire wafers that are 0.43 millimeters thick. Okay. I say thick, but it's actually quite thin. Yeah, even half a millimeter isn't, I mean... That's probably the, the thickness of the top screen on your cell phone. Well, it's still pretty thin. Mm-hmm. And they used, and you know, remember this is the, it's vaporization, so it's gas-driven. And so they used methane to give a higher quality film growth and hydrogen since it controls the rate of, of growth of the graphene. And these sheets of graphene are in sapphire were used in experiments to detect cancer cells. So the graphene sapphire, sapphire sheets were treated and coated with an antibody that could could detect epithelial cell adhesion molecule. And this is a molecule that was present on the cancer cells. And so when the cancer cells bind to the antibody, they change the conductance of the sensor, which then can then be measured. So they use low electrical fields so they didn't damage the cells or degrade the antibodies. And they were able to detect changes in resistance as low as 20% with just a small number of captured cells. So I don't know if you wanted to... I didn't really get how they detected it so i mean what would your best guess be of how they would have detected like a change in resistance over the cell population the thing is you can measure resistance without a lot of interaction with the cell so you don't need to like shock the cells right. or anything to measure the resistance typically you would set up a tiny current mm-hmm. and then you measure a voltage mm-hmm. and um as we know voltage over current is equal to resistance. Well, you know that. I don't know that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, that's my job. I know. So what happens is super sensitive circuits that measure resistance called like Wheatstone bridges and some other devices. And you can just look up Wheatstone bridge because it's a lot to describe here. But those are that's a sort of a classic technique for measuring resistance. My guess is that like anything, you can cells have ions and ion transfer. So... There's, you can establish a current flow mm-hmm. through cells. And it's possible that in this case, there's uh, one, these you can build epithelial cell adhesion molecules that can bind to graphene. Yeah. So graphene makes a great substrate for biomarkers. Yes, it does. Carbon's usually yeah. good at binding. And, and sapphire is a great substrate to attach the biomarkers to. Mm-hmm. So, so sapphire, I mean, not the biomarkers, but the graphene. Graphene, yeah. And so essentially what you're using the sapphire for is just as a substrate. Now, there's probably other substrates you could use, like you could use gallium nitride. You could use silicon carbide. You could build substrates out of silicon. So there are, there are ways to do substrates, all of which will allow graphene to be grown. But yeah, sapphire they, might be the cleanest. Yeah, the researchers said that they liked it because it's suitable for high-temperature graphene growth, which yes. I think is a better way to adhere the graphene to the sapphire. And probably the only other thing you could do is silicon carbide. To do yeah. That so apparently the sapphire is stable up to 2,000 Celsius, which is yep. quite hot. Mm-hmm. So just to recap, the graphene is grown on a polished sapphire sheet and treated to be a sensor and with antibodies to a specific cancer cell. When the cells bind to the antibody, it changes the resistance of the graphene sheet, and that can be detected and measured, thus quantifying the cancer cells present. The researchers are hoping that this type of technology could be used for real-time cancer cell detection. 
Okay. So, you know, not taking the biopsy, having to do the histology, blah, 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 like take biopsy, slap it on some graphene, you know, if the cancer cells are present or not. Yeah, that that's great. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it's not truly real time, but it is well, I mean, faster it than putting it under a microscope. I mean, yeah, well, I think, you know, real time, definitions of real time in science vary. So, like, you're thinking about staining and pathology in, three, you know, three I mean, to four take, days yeah, versus an afternoon of, you know, binding and, photo, you know, yeah. gathering some yeah, data. That's real time. That is real time for cancer detection, right? Yeah. So there's another type of biosensor developed using Sapphire, and it's a Sapphire Sphere Phototonic Sensor. And I have to tell you, Demos, I may need to go back and get a whole PhD in sensors and optics because these articles are challenging. I mean, even as an engineer, I, I don't know if I would get much more out of the article, but what, what was it simply? How, how okay. did it simply work? So optical biosensors have some advantages over other detection devices because um, they can theoretically do remote sensing, they're very sensitive, and they don't destroy the sample. The authors of this paper, Mohammed Mirab et al. in the Journal of Biomedical Optics in 2014, used a photonic microcavity to act as a sensor. And it's essentially, a microcavity is what it sounds like, a really small hole, right? Mm-hmm. And there's reflecting faces on the two sides of the space layer. So it's basically like a little hole. So if you think about like drilling into a sapphire, you're going to create facets okay. when you do that. Okay. Yeah. And the target mole- molecules are amplified in this micro cavity due to the recirculation of the light in the, in the cavity. So basically mm-hmm. the light's bouncing off all the sides. Yeah. The way a laser works. Right. Um, but it also changes the property of the micro cavity to have something in it. So it's detected, detectable. And this is via electromagnetic waves. Okay. So much like an x-ray, if there's something in the way of an x-ray, it you scatters, see the you know, see it. the shadow. This yeah. is kind of the same situation where there's something in the way of the electromagnetic magnetic wave, and so you can detect it. So the authors created a sphere of synthetic sapphire and inserted a probe DNA, probe meaning they knew the DNA sequence already. Okay. To detect the DNA, they used a diode laser to excite the electromagnetic wave produced uh, by the DNA inside the microcavity, and the scattered light was detected by a photo by photodiode via an optical microscope. And then the data was sent to a, an oscilloscope for data acquisition. And again, this is sort of akin to the X-ray actually just scatters the light, mm-hmm. and it's detected, and the radiograph is what you read to... Well, the oscillograph. Is no, in the X-ray, the radiograph yeah. is what yeah. you read. In this one, the oscillograph is what you read. And the authors concluded that the system could be used to study the physical properties of DNA and protein molecules. However, at the, this point, I think it would be cost prohibitive to have this be a real-time sensor to detect DNA and RNA. But more recently, uh, Xia P. et al. published in Biosensors and Bioelectronics, they're experimented on sapphire-supported nanopores for high-speed, low-noise DNA sensing. So perhaps the field is moving forward. You know, there's a real, I think the, the coronavirus outbreak really underscored the need for real-time, low limit of detection methodologies mm-hmm. for detecting things like RNA and DNA, you know, in people, in the environment, and PCR is really robust. It's been around for a long time. It's a really good technique. It does have limits to the amount you can detect, and it takes some time. Like it's not a fast. Yeah. It's not a fast thing. So what we're saying is, Sapphire could help um, revolutionize medicine by creating these sort of new ways of combining optics and electronics. <clears throat> to um, sense DNA, yeah. specific type probe DNA, as you say. Well, yeah, or specific, you could, yeah. Is probe DNA a new thing? Because I'm surprised they don't use it now for fast 
testing. No, probe DNA just means that you the, the authors know how much and what DNA they put in. It's just a probe. It's essentially a probe. Finally, I have a little fun case of some self-correcting science. So single crystal sapphire aluminum oxide ceramic dental implants were developed in 1972 as an alternative to the metal ones. While ceramic is biocompatible and has good compressive strength, it's brittle and it's hard. So the thought was by adding the sapphire aluminum oxide that would offset some of the disadvantages of pure ceramics. Unfortunately, the new sapphire implants had a range of problems, including fractures, infection, pain, and bone loss. One follow-up study of patients with porous sapphire dental implants found that only three of 65 implants remained in place 20 years after they were installed. So they're currently not used anymore in dental practice. Wow. So that's one that? failure. <laughs> and they're probably pretty expensive, too. Well, I mean, dental stuff is expensive now, yeah. so can't imagine it was more so. Okay, so for our glossary, we're going to try something a little different this time, and I'm going to give my non-scientific version of the definition. Valence state is how much an atom can bond to another atom like hydrogen. Alluvial deposits, very scientific definition, gunk washed down rivers. Mm-hmm. Good. A lapidary is someone who shapes gemstones. Graphene is thin sheets of carbon. And a substrate is something you grow stuff on. Okay. Yeah, very scientific definitions, right? I like it. Those are easier to remember. Yeah, I think so too. All right, fun facts. What makes a purple sapphire? Well, you had me answer that earlier. It was a combination of different elements. Iron, I remember, was the one that made it blue, right? Iron and... Titanium? Yes. Okay. And what makes it red? Uh, Chromium? Yeah. Okay, cool. And then... Why is sapphire good for making graphene sheet biosensors? Hmm. Well, I mean, we talked a little bit about how you can grow. You need high temperatures to grow the graphene, and only sapphire can handle that. Yeah. And not only, but sapphire Sapphires is one too, of the yeah. things that can handle it. And then super easy softball question. What is sapphire made of? Well, um, as we've talked about aluminum oxide, <laughs> it's, not very, um, it's not very interesting on its own, but in its crystalline form, it becomes sapphire. Yeah. So I hope you've enjoyed exploring sapphires with me and Demos, and I hope you remember a little fun fact from this episode the next time you're at a party. Maybe if someone just had a dental implant. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Just make sure it's not a sapphire one. (laughs) Maybe one of the three. Um, So thank you for listening to this episode of Luxi. A very special thank you to my audio engineer and co-host, Demos. Our theme music is Harlequin Mood by Birdie. We're on Twitter and Instagram at LuxiPod, and our website is luxi.podcastpage.io. While we always love you to follow us, subscribe to the podcast, and review us, this week we're asking that if you're moved by what's happened recently here in the U.S., please call your senators and representatives and voice your support for gun control legislation. If you want to know more about how to do that, you can visit everytown.org. Our hearts are with those who are healing from the unspeakable tragedy of the last few weeks.